last few weeks, probably three weeks now at this point, um, I have been presenting, we have been looking um, at the concept of the church, okay? Uh, the, the basic title for this is the church, Humanity 2.0, all right? The first version, the first version of Humanity 1.0 um, got corrupted. Have you ever gotten that message on your computer? These files are corrupt. That's a bad thing. And um, the first version of humanity was corrupted by sin. God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. They did. And uh, so, that, so they were placed under a curse. And everything, therefore, under Adam is still under a curse. And there's no way out from it. God, God can't restore it. It is unfixable. So what God is doing is creating a brand new humanity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, right? And so this idea, and, and that, that's to be taken very seriously. He is a, or she, is a new creation. In other words, not a new and improved version of you. You are a new creation. Um, and, and like John says in, um, or yeah, John says in 1 John, where he says, uh, beloved, now we are the children of God, but it does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is, okay? What we will be like in eternity is we will be like Jesus, okay? And so that's, that's when this new nature will come into full fruition. Right now, we have been born into a new nature, and what the church is, is this brand new version of humanity, or humanity 2.0. And so with all of the teaching that I've been uh, doing over the last three or four weeks, most of it has been oriented uh, toward looking at church um, using the metaphor of family, okay? Family has kind of been the fundamental, the church as God's family. And, and that is the metaphor that I, it's kind of like my go-to metaphor when I think about the church, because the church kind of appears to me, um, it, the idea of family is the concept that best identifies for me or describes what my understanding of the church <clears throat> fundamentally is. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of the, probably one of the biggest reasons for that is having been, or because I am the founder, or my wife and I are the founders of this church, <clears throat> we uh, got this thing off the ground some 34 years ago. I tend to feel like a daddy here. You know what I mean? It, it's just kind of built into the just built into the mindset. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, to this, you know, we got this thing started 34 years ago, got connected with some, some strange people who uh, bailed out on us pretty quick, a couple of years into it, and, and kind of abandoned the whole thing. And, uh, but God has kept it alive and prospered, and, and the church is thriving. I praise God for what he's building here, and I am so grateful to be pastor here and to uh, be, be part of what God is doing. Um, but because I'm the founder of the church, we've birthed it, we nurtured it, we care for it, we go around, I go and turn the lights off. You know, I, I do the daddy, I, the things that daddies do, right? Turn the lights off when everybody else leaves them on. I, I turn the heat down when everybody else leaves it up or turn it up when everybody else, whatever it may happen to be. But it's just kind of like, a, it's my, psycholo my psychology, I guess, of the church. Um, but I'm always looking for ways to improve it and, and you know, add to it or, or enhance it or whatever. That's one reason why I think I tend to see the church as a family. And, and the other reason is because I'm, by nature, I'm a very relational type of person. So it's very easy for me to connect with people. I tend to really care about the people that the Lord leads here. You'll be happy to know that if you've recently come by. I, I only charge um, a, a couple of thousand dollars for people who have been here less than a year for any type of counseling or services or, you know, what, no, I'm only kidding. Um, but if people come, they, people can be there for two weeks. And if they have a problem, I want to be there. I want to be involved it's, uh, because you're part of the family. So as you become part of the family, now I hope this doesn't unleash a whole series of endless calls this week about, uh, oh, Pastor Steve, come here, my hamster's sick and <laughs> whatever it may happen to be. Okay. But because I'm relational, I tend to just connect um, like in a family type of a sense. And so I feel like the daddy I see you as God's kids. I, I, I'm inclined to be the protector, the provider, the advisor, whatever needs to be done. Uh, and this, is, this has been apparent, I think, in the messages that I've shared with you over the last few weeks. 
and when we've looked at what it means to be part of this eternal fellowship, this eternal family that God has built. So let me just kind of rehearse some of the stuff and scroll through the stuff that we've said, uh, and you'll, I think you'll, you'll see what I mean. Three weeks ago, we started talking about humanity 2.0. I defined the church as the church, uh, in talking about what the church is and what the church is not, we all know what the church is not, right? What is the church not? A club, okay, that it is not. It is also not a building. Oh, man, I, I, I was surprised that one just didn't come rolling back at me. Okay, the church is not a place I go to. It's not an event I attend. It is a spiritual family that I belong to. All right, so that was the starting point. And then we rolled through eight reasons why the church is the most important group on earth. And so here they are. We'll just kind of, won't, won't describe them or get into them, but just... Why is the church the most important thing that's happening on planet Earth? Well, because the church is God's family. Number two, the church is the only reason why God created the universe. That is an extremely significant statement. In other words, it's like because I, I, when, when I was teaching on this, we uh, went back to the, the book of Ephesians chapter one and it says, for he chose us, we were chosen in him uh, in love, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. So he chose us before the foundation of the world, meaning before God created anything, before there was a let there be light or anything on planet Earth, before there was a cosmos, before there were stars, before there was anything, God was already contemplating, I want to build myself a family. That's what I'm going to get out of all this thing. That's what God wants to get out of all the stuff that goes on, out of all, and, and it's, it, to me it's so amazing because you would think that God can get whatever he wants, right? He's God. The one thing God cannot get is my heart. I have to give my heart to God. I have to give my allegiance to God, and that's a big part of where we'll be going today. So the church is the only reason that God created this universe, and right now in the universe, the gospel is going forth. It is a message of amnesty and, 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 um, and reconciliation. So God is calling the lost world, whosoever will may come and may eat of the, uh, you know, of this, the banqueting table that we are invited to. Everyone is invited to this. Every race, every tribe, every tongue, every creed, everybody is invited into this and Happily, the gospel is going forth and people are responding to it and that's essentially what the, the, the uh, the message and the method of the, of the church is all about. So the church is the only, um, I'm sorry, Jesus, the church is the only reason why God created the universe. Number three, uh, God is using his church to fulfill his eternal purpose. What is his eternal purpose? To have a family, okay? And so when all of this is done, we will still be around. As a matter of fact, things will just be getting going good, right? And we will wake up from this life, whether we die and wake up, you know, eternity, or whether we get translated when, when Christ comes and we are part of that great gathering together of saints together when the Lord appears, one way or another, um, that's when things are actually going to start getting good. It's going to be like waking up from kind of a weird dream. That's what, that, this is my concept. You ever just have like a weird kind of a scary dream? That's what life is like, isn't it? A weird, scary dream. Well, maybe it's what my life. I mean, I, I don't want... <laughs> I know some people who have a, you know, weird, scary dream for a life, I guess. But, um, you know, th this life is filled with concerns and troubles and difficulties and challenges and obstacles. Jordan Peterson has become world-renowned because he speaks to people and speaks honestly about the reality of the hard world that we are living through and how you have to, you have to get tough. You can't be a pushover. You can't be a pansy. You can't be a wimp in this life. You've got to be strong or you will just get mowed down. And, and we find that kind of strength in the Lord to be able to be courageous and strong and faithful and fearless to go forward despite the fact that there's many, many challenges that life just throws. You never know when the next one is coming. Like I said a couple weeks ago, there are, you're in one of three situations. You are either coming out of a major trial or you're in the midst of a major trial or you will soon find yourself in the midst of a major trial. That is the constant, that is the rule. The exception uh, are those nice, wonderful seasons when nothing's going bad and everything is wonderful and 
God's blessing seems to be everywhere. It's your blessing is overtaking me, like we sang here this morning, right? There, that happens as well. So um, God is using his church to fulfill his eternal purpose. I got to move. Okay, number four, why is the church the most important thing on earth? Because Jesus died for his church. Jesus didn't die for a company. Jesus didn't die for a nation. Jesus died for his church specifically. That's how much he cares. That's how much he loves. That's how much you matter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for the church. That's how important it is. Number five, the church is the only thing presently on earth that will last forever. Everything else will be gone. All the politics, all the sports, all the trophies, all the businesses, all the money, all the everything, all the honor, all the wealth, all of it will someday be gone, but what will continue on into the eternal future will be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the called out assembly of the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, number six, the church is the only thing that ha- that, um, that, that's happening on planet earth Uh, that Jesus said will succeed. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this thing will succeed. Sometimes it looks, I mean, right now we're kind of in an interesting cultural situation. There was a time and it really wasn't that long ago when our church, when our culture was still pretty Christianized. People were still pretty calm. Going to church was a pretty common experience. Some knowledge of the Bible, pretty common experience. That's unfortunately, radically changed, and now we are rapidly moving into the, cult, uh, the post-Christian type of an era, and in my opinion, that's why, and we see all of the accompanying chaos with that, because it, it, um, I, if, you, um, if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, and uh, God says something to this effect, I'm kind of paraphrasing. God says, yeah, I'll, if you don't want me, I'll leave, but you won't like what, what it looks like when I'm gone. Because everything that's good comes from me. And when I leave, all that goes with me, and you will be left with lying, cheating, anger, like all of the, all of the mayhem of sinful society. That's what takes over when God himself says, I'm out. So for us to have rejected God has placed us in the situation of grave jeopardy where our, our, our culture is experiencing the corruption and the damage that happens when we give up on God or when we fail to be faithful to God or when we fail to honor God. That's probably it, right? This morning you're here because you wanted to honor God. You probably could have used another half an hour, an hour of sleep, and it would have been nice to stay home, and you can even have watched Pastor Steve on TV. You don't want to do that, though, because you wanted to be here, because you want to honor the Lord. That's what we're here for, to honor and to sing and to praise, and also to kind of connect with our beloved friends in the church. Anyway, I got I to move on. So um, number seven, the church is the only group big enough, diverse enough, united enough to solve the world's problems. That's kind of an extraordinary statement and uh, hard to exactly, for me to exactly define the context of that. But what God is building, okay, we could solve every problem on planet Earth. If, the ch- if all churches were completely united and all energies uh, were working together, can you imagine what kind of a dynamic force the church would be? How many volunteers we would have? We would have more volunteers than anybody in the world. We would have more wealth than anybody else in the world. We would have more motivation than anybody else in the world because we would be motivated by the love of Christ. And the love of Christ would look at the challenges and the problems and would address them. So the church has that, that uh, capability. Um, it's just how we haven't seen much of it quite yet. The church is the only group big enough, diverse enough, etc. Number eight, the greatest privilege on planet earth is to be part of God's church. If you are part of the Lord's church, if you are born of the spirit, if you have become reconciled to God, you got the golden ticket. You got the golden ticket. Okay? So um, <clears throat> that's, that's what we looked at in the first message. Then we ran a few reasons Five benefits um, of belonging to a church family. The first benefit is a church family um, helps me focus on God. Second one, a church family helps me face life's problems. Three, a church family helps me fortify my faith. Number four, 
A church family helps me find my place to make a difference. Number five, a church family helps me fulfill my God-given life's uh, mission. Uh, What I'm putting all this out there for is that you can, so that you will see how central the idea of family has been to the teaching that we've done, whole metaphor of family. Again, it's just kind of like my my natural default go-to on my understanding uh, of what the church is. Um, And then we ran through a number of reasons why church membership matters. In joining a church, you make visible your commitment to Christ and his people. Making commitment makes, makes a powerful statement in a low commitment culture. We tend by nature as Americans to be overly independent, okay? And, and becoming part of a church, committing to a church uh, is a stand against that radical um, independent type of an attitude. Number four, church membership keeps us accountable. Number five, joining the church will help your pastor and elders be more faithful shepherds. So all of these things, you should join the church because it's a great family and you'll make it a better family, we hope. And, um, and so that, that has kind of been the substance of what we've been sharing with you over the, over the last little while. But the family is not the only metaphor that is used in the New Testament to describe the church. And then that's where we want to go here this morning. And we want to look at another metaphor, one that is amazingly interesting. And one that I myself have never really delved into. I've certainly, it's certainly been talked about here. It's been mentioned for sure. But I don't think I've ever done any uh, serious teaching um, in the past, uh, this whole idea of the church as the bride of Christ. I've mentioned it, but I've never really delved into it. Um, So today we're going to take a look at the church as the bride of Christ. Let's take a moment and we will commit our minds and thoughts and hearts to the Lord. Father God, we thank you for this place. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for everybody that you brought together here today. Thank you that it all plays into the sovereign purpose that you have in each one of our lives. We thank you that you've drawn us in to this family that you're building. You've made us a part of all this. We thank you that you're, you're working here and you're, you're saving people and you're changing lives and you're saving marriages and you're helping people. And we just are grateful to be a part of all of that. And as we look at this incredible topic here this morning of the church as the bride of Christ, God, give us insight and give us understanding about what this is and, and um, how it applies and in our lives. So God, we just ask that you uh, release and, and the understanding of your truth to us as we study your word, and uh, we ask that, it, that, that your word ha- brings forth wonderful fruit. And I pray this now in Jesus' name and for his sake, and everybody said, Amen. okay. So when we think of the church as the family of God, it kind of brings to mind reflections that are grounded in our common experience of family. It is certainly true that almost all of us, when we were born, were born into some kind of a family, all right? There are those few unfortunate people that are utterly orphaned and never really have an opportunity to connect uh, with a family, but most of us are are born into a family. You may have been fortunate enough to have been born into a loving, stable, secure type of family with a father and mother who loved each other and who brought you into this world as in order to, to, to celebrate the love and the desire that they shared for one another. Um, perhaps you came into the world and were blessed to be a part of a family uh, such as that. Or you may have been born into a family which was going through all kinds of problems, all kinds of difficulties. It could be marriage problems, extended family problems, personal problems, financial problems, psychological problems. Um, there are many families that, are deeply, str- that deeply struggle with, with the challenges uh, that life serves up. Um, it might be that you were just kind of an accident. Your arrival was just one more problem that needed then to be, uh, to be addressed. But either way, um, it's interesting that you had absolutely nothing to do with your being here. Right? It, was, it, it happened to you. It was uh, entirely a subjective experience uh, for you. You're coming into the world with something. You, 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 you managed to squeeze yourself out of your mother's womb somehow and then spent years trying to learn how to adapt to the people and circumstances and who you are and who they are and how it all works together and how it all functions. And we've all got our own interesting stories about our family. And, and so it, it, is a, it is a concept that is common to us all. 
uh, and becoming part of it required no preparation whatsoever on your part. You just had to wake up here one day. But the family teaches us a lot of important lessons. And so the, the, the concept or the metaphor of family is, for better or for worse, common to us all. It's, where a place, it's, it's a place where you just are and you just belong and that's just it and it has its own characteristics. But we all understand the idea of family. So when we're thinking about God's family, it is something that we can translate into because we all, have all been part of a family. Okay. However, um, understanding our identity as the bride of Christ is a somewhat different matter. I think it is anyway. It's a different story. Because based upon how it breaks down uh, in terms of our gender, okay, um, and we actually, there are, here's a quiz. How many genders are there? Good, good. If you, if you answered two, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, anyway, but based on our gender, only um, slightly more than half of us will ever have the experience of being a bride. So that, that's an important thing, right? Um, I'm quite sure that I'm never going to be a bride. And so the concept of being a bride is a little bit foreign, it's a little bit strange for me, but happily, in my role as a pastor, I have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be involved in all of the mechanics and dynamics of weddings all the way along the line. And I've had tremendous opportunities to see up close and personal um, how getting married affects um, women. And it is quite an eye-opening experience. I would have to say that I believe ladies have I think that ladies have a leg up in this, in terms of understanding this concept. I'm never going to be a bride. I don't understand it. I don't really get it. I see what happens when, I, I see what happens when uh, girls or ladies get engaged, and it is quite a trip. Right? It, it, all the ladies are chuckling because you know uh, that it's true. <clears throat> um, when a young man proposes to a woman and she says yes, it's as though everything else that her life was about suddenly goes on hold and she becomes completely and utterly consumed with the business of getting married. Can I get a witness on that? Right? For those of you who have had marriages in your family or have gotten married, right? everything else goes off the table. This becomes kind of a, kind of a mania if, uh, if I, I, that may be a bit pejorative, but it, it becomes, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, it becomes a craziness that kind of overtakes ladies when they learn that they're going to be a bride and they become utterly consumed with that. Now, I can honestly say that when I asked Lorraine to marry me uh, and when Lorraine had the momentary lapse of good judgment to say yes, um, I didn't have it in mind, it, it didn't catapult me into an all-consuming vortex of planning and meeting and shopping and phone calls and getting all, all of that stuff that I, that I see as so characteristic of what happens in a, in a woman's world when uh, she uh, is facing uh, or when she's looking down the road to being married. Um, so, but when I, I, I didn't, I didn't get into that at all or like that. And, and I, I have a feeling that I'm, my, my experience is common for men. In other words, when, when you uh, asked your wife to marry you, you didn't spend the next six months like obsessing about the wedding that was coming up and what had to happen and what's got to do. I mean, you might say, well, yeah, that, that, was, what, that was her job. That was what she um, was supposed to do. But in, in other words, for us, now there, there were, I, I, to be honest, there were certain aspects of the marriage about to be that I certainly found attractive and was very interested and in, in, living in anticipation of, if you know what I mean. And that's what that speaks of, of course, is the raw carnality, the sheer carnality of the male of our species, right? It's all about self-gratification and, uh, and, and me getting what I want, right? So, so that, was, uh, that, that certainly had a, an appeal. That certainly had, had some anticipation. But it, it's, it's not at all like what, um, like what seems to happen to ladies when they, when, when they um, get engaged. 
Um, I, I just came to the realization that uh, Lorraine was the right girl for me to marry, so I proposed to her, and then I looked forward to the day that we would say our vows, and we would become husband and wife, and that was kind of it. It wasn't something that was on my mind 24-7. Um, but uh, I have learned that things are radically different in a woman's world, and uh, especially for a woman who is about to become a bride. It's kind of a craziness with all the details, all the preparation. I hope I'm not offending you ladies, but we're just trying, we're calling attention to a cultural, I think a cultural reality for a particular purpose. So in short, to be kind, it becomes like kind of a complete obsession, a, a, an utter passion, a preoccupation, and, and oftentimes lasts like right up to the wedding day itself, maybe even part of the wedding day itself with, with all of the mayhem and craziness of actually making it happen. Um, so um, in thinking of this, I was thinking of, uh, of Lorraine, and I was thinking, you no, know, Lorraine didn't, uh, this didn't happen to Lorraine. I don't know why. Lorraine actually, when we got engaged, of course, we had been living together for three years, which I've told you many times, and then broke up, and then the Lord came into the mix, and then that's how we wound up um, getting, finding our way back together again. And so when we got married, and again, I asked Lorraine to marry me, um, Lorraine went out and got her wedding dress for $50 at a consignment shop. Now that is not normal. That's not the way it's supposed to work, right? But, you know, it's, that's just not her. And uh, so anyway, when, uh, you know, when, when a woman becomes engaged, it kind of sets loose a whole process of things that, that become um, front and center in a big way. And all this has not gone unnoticed by the people who know that there is some serious money to be made because of uh, this wedding. And so they've capitalized on this obsession by producing a number of ridiculously self-absorbed and extravagant TV programs which inflame wedding-oriented interests in young women. No, I'm gonna know. <laughs> I mean, to it, say yes to the dress, okay? Or um, bridezillas. Okay, or now, of course, the guys don't know what I'm talking about because th these are programs that no no guy would ever watch, right? Bridezillas or 90 Day Fiance. Am I am I am I hitting, ladies? Right? Now, and, and what what amazes me is how ladies can like become completely. They can watch any one of those programs all day long. You know, I think it's so weird. I can understand why people would watch football all day. But I guess there's something gender, grounded in gender in, in that whole matter as well, right? But it, like when, when my wife's uh, family comes down, she has four sisters and her mother. It's not uncommon for me to walk over there and there they're all sitting in the living room watching Say Yes to the Dress. And it, and it uh, you know, again, from my point of view, it's like, the dumbest thing that I've ever seen, you know, and, and like, and, and, and it's obsessive, and there's all these gay guys that always have so much to say, you know, and, uh, you know, and so, you know, like, these, this, this absorb, this kind of obsession that goes on is just part of the whole thing, and uh, so there's a lot of people that have capital, learned to capitalize on all of this, but anyway, um, regarding this whole idea of the bride, the church is the bride of Christ, I think that ladies have a leg up in understanding this concept, and we men, as usual, just don't get it. But we'll figure it out. Well, of course, we learn along the way. I've had a couple of daughters, and we've gone through the whole process with them, and certainly experienced all of that. Certainly lots of people from the church have been married. So I think ladies have um, a better closer ability to actually apprehend this concept than we as men do. So the idea of what it means to be the bride of Christ probably fails to resonate with us, certainly men, as deeply as it ought to, and this is terribly unfortunate, okay? This is terribly unfortunate because this concept is deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in Scripture, it is deeply rooted both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can go through just about any book in the Bible that you want to. It, this, this idea of the love affair and the, and the relationship and the marriage between God and his people, between Christ and the church, is found all over the Bible. It's in Psalms. 
It is certainly in Song of Solomon. It is, it is certainly the essence of the, of the whole um, poem or, or writing the, the prose of Song of Solomon. My beloved is mine and I am his. You know, like this, um, the, whole, the whole story is about this love relationship between the shepherd and the Shunammite woman. Uh, Jeremiah, it's, you'll find it in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, all over the place, and we'll look at some of those uh, as time goes along. And the reason why it is so important and the reason why it's such, so knit in with the, um, with the context uh, and, and the, the significance meaning of, of Scripture is because what actually happened in the Old Testament was that God made a covenant with the people of Israel. Now, that's an important word. That word is not a synonym for a contract, okay? I'll go through a couple of things to show why a contract and a covenant are not the same thing by any stretch, okay? But God made a covenant with the people of Israel, meaning that there was no possible, a covenant, there, there is no greater um, relationship, basis for a relationship than a covenantal basis. It is pervasive. It is as deep uh, a reality as anything could possibly be. So God made a covenant with Israel, the strongest relational agreement possible. In essence, he had married himself to them and he had received them as his people, as his bride. They, he speaks of them often as uh, the, the, uh, his bride. Now, to, to just... Um, divert for a moment on what I just said before, this idea of the difference between a contract and a covenant. Uh, a covenant is based upon trust. You would only make a covenant with a person that you trust. And the reason is because a covenant has unlimited liability. You are on the hook to fulfill your part of the covenant. So a covenant is based on trust um, because it, uh, because it, it brings for or it brings to me unlimited liability. A contract is exactly the opposite. A contract is based on distrust. You must make a contract with somebody that you don't trust in order to limit your liability and in order to be sure that you are going to get the benefit of the things um, that you have uh, connected over. So, <clears throat> and thirdly, a covenant is lifelong and not to be broken, but a contract can be voided by mutual consent. Now, there is, um, there is within the marriage covenant, there is, spouses may seek to divorce or separate legally for specific and limited reasons in the New Testament. You, things like abuse, adultery, and abandonment, okay, are things that violate or, or nullify um, a covenant. But even then, I think that the, the concept of what a covenant is, is so strong that it, that it should be understood as utterly inviolable. And so, um, when God connected with the people of Israel, he made a covenant. In essence, he married himself to them. And this, and this covenant aspect of God's relationship to the people of Israel is illustrated all over the place in the Old Testament, but it is, it is particularly illustrated in the book of Hosea. Now, I don't know when the last time you uh, got to the book of Hosea and read that, but Hosea is a very enigmatic, like weird, strange, odd, unusual story about this guy, Hosea, who is a priest in Israel. And then God tells him to do something. You'll, we'll, uh, I'll put the, uh, the text up for us in a little bit. God tells him to do something. And when you hear it, when you read it, you'll go, what? <laughs> right? It's like, what? And, and if I'm saying what, I can only imagine what Hosea was saying because what God tells him to do utterly blows up in his face, becomes an absolute train wreck and nothing but trouble. And this is, this is basically his story, right? What, um, and, so, and so in this book, um, he marries this woman and then they have a family, but then she goes out and she starts running around with other men and stuff like that and she gets pregnant. And, he, and then God sends him back to, sends him out. She at that point is just kind of a slave on the chopping block or on the meat market and he sends out um, Hosea, he sends Hosea back to retrieve her and bring her back. And it is this statement of God's passion and his love and his desire for, he, for his unfaithful bride to return, for him to secure. So let's, we'll, uh, 
we'll get into this text <clears throat> here a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, this is Hosea chapter one. The Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. There's the, huh? Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Jezreel means scatter. Okay, it is a word that's used in terms of enemies. If you let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, it has to do with um, something scattering something in, in many directions, or it has to do with sowing of seed. So it kind of has two connotations to it. And what God is preparing the people of Israel for at this particular time is they are about to get scattered. They are about to <clears throat> be exiled. So the Lord said, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. All right, on we go, still the first chapter. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Okay, so this is the opening chapter. And so Hosea, poor Hosea, by, according to what we're reading, by instruction of the Lord, goes and marries a certain woman and then it just turns out to be a disaster. They, for a while, they're, they're, they're together, and she's having his children, and they're raising a family, and then all of a sudden, she just goes off the rails somewhere. She becomes a bad mamma jamma, and she's running around all over the place, and she starts having you know, babies that are being born by other fathers, and you would think that, she, that he would be off the hook with this, right? But his heart is broken. And so um, God tells him, go out and, 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 and rescue her. Go get her again and bring her back. And, the whole, and, and what God wants Hosea to learn through all of this is like, yeah, what's happening to you is an illustration of what's happening to me with, your pe with, with you guys as my people, with you guys as my covenant partner. You guys are, faith are not being faithful to this covenant. And so I will no longer be faithful to this covenant beyond this particular point. It fits into a much larger picture along the way. But, it, but it's an illustration, again, of this idea that from the get-go, God was connected to his people in the deepest possible way, because the deepest relationship that we know of on planet Earth is the relationship between husband and wife. This marriage covenant is the most permanent, long-lasting, and potentially the most fruitful relationship that life offers us. Okay, and so God is using that same, or, or um, it, it is an illustration or a type of God's relationship with his people. <clears throat> now, when we, that, that's, we, we just kind of scratch the surface of what we can find in the Old Testament. There's much more, and we'll probably see much more, because it's going to take a number of weeks to, to present um, all the stuff that's, uh, that's on my mind at the moment. But if it's, if it's presented and if it's clearly represented in the Old Testament, it is presented big time in the New Testament. It is gigantic, this idea of our being the bride of Christ. But again, the, the, the problem as I see it, uh, particularly for us guys, is that it doesn't trigger the thing in us that, let's say, gets triggered in your average lady when she learns that she's going to be, um, when she's going to be married. And, and there's, there's, again, it be, and I'm not saying any of this to be insulting, but just simply to say, when you see the effect of what a proposal of marriage has on a woman in this world and how she goes into this whole process of preparation, everything is like, it's all about this. Shouldn't that be the way that it is for us? In other words, when we think of our relationship with the Lord, when we think of the fact that uh, John uh, shared a message with us, maybe it was a year and a half ago or two, uh, about the, the wedding in Israel or the wedding, right? And, and it's, it's an amazing story. I was going to actually bring some of it this morning, but I knew we wouldn't have time. But I probably will bring some more of that. Because the, 
in terms of the, the custom, the Old Testament custom of being married, every aspect of it actually fits in to the things that Jesus did and set up and told his people to anticipate like thing for thing in terms of the stages of how that covenant or how that betrothal took place. First thing that happened was the bride left his house or, or the groom left his place and went to the bride's house and talked to the bride's father and um, paid the bride price. Okay, I'm just going to kind of condense it, right? But, and that bride price was not cheap because that, that family was going to be forfeiting their daughter. And so he had to come up with the bride price right up front. Then they would, when she agreed, they would have a cup of wine together. And then he would go back to where he lived and he would start preparing the place. What does Jesus say in John chapter four? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house. There are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. And the place where I'm going, you know, and you know the way to get there. So Jesus is saying the exact same thing that a bridegroom would say to his bride. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get the place ready. And you're not going to know when I'm coming. No, of course, no texts, no cell phones, no right? None of the, the things that are so common for us today. So she never knew when exactly he was going to be done with that process and when he would be returning then to retrieve her the, for the wedding to actually happen and she would then join him in his place. <clears throat> and there are all these aspects of what was part of the cultural marriage ceremony or traditional marriage ceremony in Israel. We'll take a quick look at it probably in a week. But it is, it is like line for line exactly similar to what Jesus did when he came here to earth. First he comes and then he pays the price and then he says, I'm going away and if I go away, I will come and uh, bring you back to myself. So all of these things are consistent with how this is portrayed in the New Testament. <clears throat> I want to just prepare, present to you as, a, as, a, we get, as I prepare to close here, um, how this is, is kind of laid out for us in the New Testament. I wanna, here's, a, here's a passage that's found in Psalm, um, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And notice what Paul writes. Now, you know, Corinthians was a church where they had their share of problems, okay? The first letter is like one, one beat down <laughs> after the next, right? Paul's just writing, yeah, yeah, another thing you're doing wrong. And then you're doing this wrong too. And, then, and how about that? That's wrong. You know what I mean? And he's just, it's a letter of correction, one thing after another. And then, <clears throat> so after, um, after he writes all of these things, he kind of feels bad. He actually, in the, first, in, in the first letter, he talks about some guy who's living with his father's wife. And, and this guy's still in the church. And he's annoyed that they haven't done something about this, that they haven't addressed this issue. There's a, a kind of a, a, a kind of moral, immorality that's going on with the, within the actual structure of the church. And he says, turn this guy over to Satan. Kind of harsh language. Turn this guy over to Satan so that, <clears throat> that Satan can have his way, so his soul will be delivered. In other words, if you give Satan a little bit of time with him, that'll, that might turn him around anyway. And so um, after he writes this, right, he, Paul obviously had some pangs of heart about what he had written. And so he writes in the second letter, and he's writing many things to say, listen, I didn't want to write the letter. I just wrote the letter because you needed the correction. But I was really, I was, I, I was deeply and earnestly in prayer and with concern for, the, for you guys as a church. So now this is what he writes in the 11th chapter of the second letter to the people at Corinth. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin uh, to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What is the heart of this whole thing? What is it really all about? It is that last statement. It is about a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If you want to pursue one most primary aspect of your relationship with God, it is found right there in a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And, and that's really, you know, when, when, Paul, when Paul went there, he wasn't just winning souls and getting people to go to church. He was actually bringing people to now become the bride of the Lord Jesus. And so he's writing to them to tell them, this is how important you guys are to me. This is, this, is how, this is the value that I place upon you. So he says, I'm afraid uh, that your 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then one more passage found in Ephesians chapter 5. You probably are familiar with this one. But notice the emphasis. I'm always amazed by how Paul turns this thing in a particular direction. He writes and says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he wraps it up. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. That's really an amazing thing that he's saying there. We would all receive that, that advice, that admonition or instruction as something um, of, of value, of benefit to those of us who are married and want, to, uh, want our marriages to be fruitful. But then he brings that last statement and he says, all of this stuff that I'm talking about really is all about your relationship with Christ. That Christ and this whole um, you know, covenant marriage relationship that we have with us being the bride of Christ. It is, this, this, is, this is almost unimaginable. It is unimaginable. It's, it's that, that God wants us to be his consort, his eternal consort forever. That everything that goes on from the time that when, when the Lord finally wraps this whole project up down here and when, when this present phase of uh, of, of earth's history is finally done and saints are gathered and we're with the Lord and marriage supper of the Lamb and all this stuff is, happens. We are going to be joined together with the Lord forever. So shall we ever be with the Lord. We are going to be his bride, his eternal concert. Whatever he does, we're going to be right there doing it. We're going to be everywhere, universally representing um, the Lord Jesus himself as his, as his official bride, as his official consort. It, it's it's, it's staggering to think of this. And again, it's, I better not get off on that, but again, it is, it is one of the most primary reasons that I absolutely don't believe in extraterrestrials and all of that stuff because it, to me, God has shown that the value of this human race that he has created is so great to him. It is so valuable to him that he chose himself to become this. He had made himself, and he, it is not as though he shed his humanity when he died. No, he is connected. He is the God-man forever. He is both fully God and fully man. And then he invites us to come into that same kind of relationship because I become a partaker of the divine nature in Christ Jesus. Because you and I have the spirit, I now am animated by the same life that was the life that was in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had it without measure. I got a little piece of it, and I'm hoping to be able to enhance it and water it and cause it to grow and make it fruitful. That's the goal of spiritual life, is to live this new life. And mom, you're born as a babe, right? A little spiritual baby. But as a spiritual baby, you are advised, you know, um, how does, what does he say? Uh, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In the book of Hebrews, I think, or Peter. Peter, I guess. And so there's, there's a process. You get born again, but we, we don't, we're not to stay babies. We're to grow and to mature so that that life that is the life of Jesus, that same life that was fully manifested in the life of Jesus, that life wants to manifest itself in you too. And however God may choose to do that, but that we, it's, it's necessary that we live in anticipation of the reality of all of that, that that life that was manifested in Jesus, that changed this world when it appeared, that life is in me. And that's why scripture can say, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's what God has done for us. Hallelujah. 
What an incredible thing. So that's what we're going to study over the next little while. And we're going to think more about being the bride of Christ and what kind of a mindset that should kind of sum it up in us and how we should be mindful that, of, of that great day that is coming and may very well come very soon in this crazy world that we are uh, passing through right now. But, we, you know, we, we don't have any real knowledge of when or all of that. But that day is coming. So let's, uh, let's close with a, a word of prayer. And I just want that, I just wanted to like put that thought in your mind here this morning. That is who we are called to be. We are called to be the bride of Christ. We're the family of God. But the, the bride seems to talk about something deeper, doesn't it? Family is one thing. Families are families. Yeah, it's kind of casual. There's, families accept you. You can, there's room to mess up in a family generally without getting kicked out of your family. You know, there's, there's, there's a certain amount of, of, of uh, area in there for failure and for restoration. But the bride thing is, just talks about a whole nother thing, a heart thing, a, a deep, deep heart thing. It talks about, I think the word that comes to mind is it talks about intimacy, right? It speaks of intimacy. That is what God wants to have with his people. That's the sincere and pure devotion in Christ. It is that intimacy that we can have, that we can live with him and walk with him and get to know him and get to know his voice and, and, and learn his leading in our life by, by experience and by tryouts and by trial and error and all kinds of things that we can grow in our relationship with the Lord and in our ability to actually be of use and service to the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the future that we have. It's incredible. The door of opportunity that you have made available to us. And it wasn't as though you just decided it. You laid your life down. You went to the cross so that we might be forgiven, so that we could now come into this brand new relationship with you, cleansed and delivered and sanctified and set apart and predisposed in faithfulness to you. And Lord, we pray that as we respond in a better way uh, to you, as our bridegroom, uh, I, I pray and I, I believe that this will just naturally happen, that you will demonstrate your role of loving a husband over us as a people, over us as individuals. So um, pray you just open up our understanding to all of this and allow us to enter into it, to think about it, to really be instructed and edified by it and uh, that it would produce that kind of intimacy and heart stuff that, that needs to happen. That, that ought to be characteristic of how the whole marriage relationship works, that kind of love. So have your way in all of this, Lord. Teach us and lead us, and we will respond because uh, we ask this and pray for it now in Jesus' name. And everybody said...